And we are in week, I believe, seven in our uh, series uh, of Malachi, speaking of an ancient truth for modern uh, times. And we uh, have been looking at the last of the Old Testament books. So if you can't find it, look to the end of the Old Testament. If you get to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've gone a little too far to the right. Head back a few books to the left. You'll find the four-chapter book of Malachi. Of course, the last chapter, or I'm sorry, the last book of the Old Testament, it's written to a people who are bored with their God. They've grown weary uh, in following God and doing what God had commanded of them. They've grown weary of worshiping and serving uh, their God. Now, why would they fall to such a sin? Well, we learned last week that their leaders, the priests, were telling them that it was okay to be weary. In fact, even the priests were weary in honoring and serving God. And as a result of this kind of activity and attitude, God sends his prophet, this guy, Malachi, his messenger, who goes and he begins to announce to the people, first of all, we see in Malachi 1, that Malachi shares the love of God. I have loved you, declares the Lord. But then after that point, after he has shared his perpetual love for the people of Israel, he begins to have, if you will, an argument with the people. Seven different times God brings forth a challenge to the people in Malachi's day. And Malachi's people come back and they say, but Lord, we haven't done that. How have we not done what you've said? And an argument, if you will, ensues. As a result of that, the book of Malachi is a negative book. It's not fun to do a study through the book of Malachi because it's quite negative. But I, as I told you last week, there's great grace in the book of Malachi. Even when God is declaring judgments upon the priest, there's grace found in the text that we looked at last week when he reminds the leaders of Malachi's day that if they were to look to the example of the Levitical priesthood of the past, They would have an example to follow, and in doing so, they would honor God and they would revere God the way that God would desire for them. So yet again, today we come to another rebuke by God. And God is going to speak of uh, Israelites' unfaithfulness. He's going to speak about three areas of unfaithfulness this morning. He's going to speak about unfaithfulness in the fellowship with one another that they had. He's going to speak of unfaithfulness to the Father in heaven that they have. And then finally, he's going to speak of their unfaithfulness to their own families. And so we're going to look at this text starting in uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 10. So I'd ask that you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word as I read Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. This is what it says, Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant our father, of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord, uh, the sanctuary uh, the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because He no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Father God, we come before you and we come to yet again a difficult passage, uh, one that uh, doesn't just strike uh, 
to the heart of people living a couple thousand, uh, 2,500 years ago, Lord, but it strikes at the very heart of us, Lord. We are going to look at a people who are unfaithful and how true it is today that uh, as you look down, even amongst your own people, that there is unfaithfulness. Father, we're unfaithful in our uh, lives, even in the just regular occurrences of today. We find ourselves lying and cheating and, and dealing wrong, in wrong ways to the people around us. Lord, we're unfaithful to you. Though you've saved us, though you watch over us and continue to sanctify us, we find ourselves, while you are faithful, we many times are faithless. Lord, we need to hear this message this morning. And Lord, even with our own families, even the ones that we are called to love, Father, we find ourselves breaking faith with them. And Lord, I pray especially within our society here in America, where it seems that marriage relationships and family relationships are disposable. Father, I pray that you would burn in our hearts this morning the truth of your word and the desire you have that we would be a covenant people just as you are a covenant God. So Lord, open our hearts today. Open our hearts that we may hear what you have to say and that we will be all the more grateful for what you've done and be all the more eager to serve and worship the only true God, the God of Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To you be the glory in all that is said and done today and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Now, I will tell you, to get all this done in, in the time we have is going to be a difficult task, but I'm going to try to do it with great ease. So let's get right into our text this morning. If you were to look at Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, you are going to see five occurrences where the word broken or breaking is involved. Five different times in this short passage, Malachi, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, in the writing of this Old Testament book, says the situation at hand is broken or it is breaking. Now, I got to tell you, I hate the word broken. I looked up that word in the dictionary, broken, 17 different definitions, 15 of them are negative. There's only two occurrences, according to Merriam-Webster, that says the word broken can be used in a positive way. One was when an individual breaks a record in some sort in athletics. But when we think of money, it's never good to say that we're broke. I've thought about even this week. This has been a broken week for your preacher. I thought about what breaking does, what being broken is. Now, I'm not talking about the word broken in the sense of humility. That was the other uh, definition that was positive. But I'm talking about the kind of breaking, the things that are broken that produce frustration. This week I had a couple vans break down in, in my business, and that's never a fun thing because mechanics aren't cheap and parts for cars aren't cheap. I thought about also that uh, as I was watching a uh, baseball game this week for the Wright team in Chicago, and one of our leadoff hitters uh, got hit by a baseball. And what happens? We hear the term, a broken bone. That's no good. Six weeks out from playing baseball. Then I, I thought about uh, uh, the occurrence that happened this week during one of the storms. We uh, woke up late one night, Amanda and I, and we heard the gusts of wind happening. And uh, we weren't sure what was going on until we uh, looked out the window and saw a major storm was taking place. There was no power on. Get the kids downstairs. We're nervous about what's happening. We're hearing all kinds of breaking and noises outside. And then once the storm passes, I look outside and we have about a 50-foot tree in our backyard. Well, 40 feet of that came down. And then I thought, well, it's just a broken tree until I looked out there and it had broke my fence and part of the kids' playground. We got broken issues. And then I thought even beyond that, my family was uh, celebrating Father's Day with my brother and my dad, and, and my five-year-old son, being a five-year-old, took a can of pop and thought that it'd be good to use it as a hammer on my laptop computer. So what does he do? He breaks the laptop. This is a week of brokenness. And I will tell you, I'm not all that very happy about any of that. Brokenness is not a good thing. And when something breaks, we usually are very quick to fix it, correct? We usually go right away and we move to take care of the problem that is broken. We don't leave it hanging there. 
Well, our text today tells us that the people, uh, the Israelites, the people of God, found themselves in a place of being broken. Again, not in a humility type of brokenness, but a broken, dysfunctional kind of way. And as a result of that, we see that the text says that they have broken faith or are breaking faith with one another. And we need to understand what that means for them as well as what it means today for us. To understand that, we need to understand, first of all, what this word broken faith means. It's best translated, I believe, by the King James Version that says they were dealing treacherously with one another. What was happening was they weren't acting like they were supposed to as a covenant people with God. But they were cheating, they were stealing, they were lying. They weren't being very nice to one another. And what he's saying is instead of being the covenant people that God called him to, called them to be, they were now breaking faith with one another by not acting the way that they should. And as a result of that, they were dealing treacherously, or the amplified version says faithlessly as a result. Now this is the great contrast of the book of Malachi. The great contrast that we see in this four-chapter book comes through of God and man. We see in chapter 1, God loves, but man hates. We see God is faithful in Malachi, man is faithless. We see that God doesn't change in the book of Malachi, and yet the people of Malachi changed all the time. We see that God binds together, and yet man tears apart. We see that God gives gifts, and later we'll see in our text of chapter 3 that man robs God. There's a great compare and contrast happening, and the reason why is that we believe that the Bible is clear that God is a covenant God. He is a promise-keeping type of God. And yet, what do we see about man across the board is that we find ourselves breaking promises and breaking the covenant every day, all the time. So what happens? Well, we think we can get away with this. We say, it's just between you and God. It's, it's no big deal. And, and God's so busy dealing with all the, the weather in the world and all the people of the world. He doesn't really care that, that I may have a broken relationship with Him. And yet, what we learn is when our vertical relationship with God is broken, then all our horizontal relationships with man are going to be broken as well. I forgot to tell you that I had a lawnmower breakdown this last couple of weeks and I went and I knew what part I had to go get fixed. It seemed like a pretty easy uh, process to get fixed and I take it to the lawn mowing service department. I said, I need a new one of these. I don't know what it's called. It looks like a doohickey. And I said, look that up in your, ca uh, your catalog, a doohickey. He looks it up and he says, all right, yes, sir, you do need a new one of those. And then he brings out this box of parts. And I said, well, I don't need any of those. He says, oh, yes, you will. He says, because your doohickey broke, everything else is broken as well. And you know what I learned? Just like with my stupid lawnmower, God says when we get our relationship wrong with Him, everything else breaks. And you may say, well, I just need this part, God. That's all I need. And what God does is He brings out all the relationships in our lives and He says, my relationship with you is off. All of these are off. So what does Malachi announce to the people? He declares, first of all, that because they had abandoned God, they were now abandoning one another. And we see that first, they were unfaithful in their fellowship with others. They were unfaithful in their fellowship with others. Let's look at our text again, starting in verse 10. It says, have we, not, have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? And why do we profane the covenant of our fathers? By breaking faith with one another. Let's start there first. By breaking faith. Now, Malachi begins by dealing with general relationships. This isn't a relationship with God. This isn't a relationship with people close to you. This is dealing with ethnic Israel, a community of people. And God says, you guys can't be nice to one another. You guys aren't being fair to one another. You're not uh, acting with integrity, with love and compassion to one another. There's just dishonesty in all facets 
facets of life. One commentator said this involved business, this involved civic life, this involved general conversation. It involved all aspects of life. And what is being said here when it says breaking faith is that they were finding themselves in their normal life relationships, that they were marked with a lack of integrity, honesty, loving compassion. A commentator that I was reading uh, wrote this in, uh, in a way. He says it was a dog-eat-dog world. It was the survival of the fittest. No matter what the cost, you got what you needed done first because it was every person for themselves. Does that sound like our day and age today? Where it's all about us. It's not about our fellow man. It's not about our fellow Christians. It's about us. What are my needs? Take care of me. Make sure that I get first in line. That's what was going on. And as a result of that pursuit, as a result of that desire in their hearts, they would go and, if you will, they were all stacked up in a line and they would be pushing people out of the way. Let me get first. They would lie their way into a new place in the line saying, I am the one that's most important. It's not about you. And as a result of that, they were uh, breaking the faith with one another. The text says that they profaned the covenant. Well, what does that mean? Literally in the Hebrew, it means that they were wounding and they were dissolving covenants with one another. God says that's no good. You can't do that. But why? There's two reasons in verse 10 that are given on why we can't live that way and why the Israelites couldn't as well. The first one is given is that they had the same father. They had the same father. The text says quite clearly, have we not all one father? Now, who was their father? Some commentators, including John Calvin, say uh, he's talking about Abraham. That, that's who he's talking about. And of course, Abraham is the father of Israel. But as I studied more, I saw that more commentaries and, and at looking at the context of the passage, that it's not talking about earthly father Abraham, but it's talking about a heavenly father, of course, Jehovah, Yahweh, And we see that, of course, in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, this is God speaking, where is the honor due me? We know in the Old Testament there are several times where God calls himself the father of Israel. And God is saying, you all have the same father. It's me, Yahweh, Jehovah. And you must be committed to one another because you are called to be committed to me. You're a part of the same family. Now notice and understand this. They needed to be brothers. They needed to act like brothers because they were God's covenant people. God had set them apart. And he says, you're going to be my nation. You are going to be my people. And I'm going to do great things through you and be a witness to all the nations because of what I do on behalf and through you. And so as a result of that, you're connected. You're connected not because you look the same, not because you make the same amount of money or because you have the same desires and thoughts, but you're connected because of your pedigree, because you are my sons and daughters. So what was he calling them to? To love and to deal with one another with integrity and humility and compassion. Chris Farley, uh, the deceased comedian, once was in a movie called Tommy Boy. And Tommy Boy is about a father uh, who, uh, Tommy's dad uh, marries a a new uh, bride and uh, he brings uh, Tommy home to meet the new mom and the new son that this uh, mom had. Now Tommy's in his probably uh, early 20s and he meets uh, a guy played by Rob Lowe who's in his 20s as well. And Tommy always wanted a brother. And Tommy meets his brother and and Rob Lowe says, well, nice to meet you, Tommy, and shakes, uh, sticks out his hand to shake hands with his new stepbrother. And Chris Farley looks at Tommy and he says, brothers don't shake hands, brothers hug. And that's what we should be doing as brothers. There's this idea that, well, you know, I go to church with this guy. Or, you know what, he's in my Bible study group, but you know, I don't have really a commitment to this guy. And we find ourselves, when we diminish who we are as Christians, we begin to forget we are of the same pedigree. We're brothers, we're sisters in Christ. 
And as a result of that, our desire should not be uh, to use our brothers and sisters. Our desire shouldn't be that we keep them at an arm's length, but that we love them and we pursue them with the love and compassion. And when we talk to them, we let our yes be yes and our no be no. We make sure that when we say to a brother or sister in Christ that we're going to do something, that we do it. And that's what it's all about. Breaking faith is not something that God wants. Why? It's not because we have the same desires and the same wants and we make the same amount of money. It is because we have the same Father in heaven. The next thing that we see is that they had the same faith. They had the same faith. Now look at what it says in 10b. It says, Did not one God create us? What do we understand about that? Israelites were a rare breed in their day. They found themselves being different than every other nation around. And why were they different? Because they believed that God had created humanity in including them as a nation to have a relationship with them. Their idea was that God was a personal God. And while he was transcendent, he was personal. And they knew this because they read the stories of their patriarchs that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, that God called these men friends and he walked and talked with them. And he did this. He wanted to have a relationship with them. No other nation would think this way. No other religion in their day would ever have thought this. They would have said that gods are not worried about humanity, that they're out there doing their thing. And even if they wanted to involve themselves with humanity, as the Greeks thought not too, not too long after Malachi's day, that the gods were all about themselves and their pleasures and their passions and their desires, that it had nothing to do with the humanity of people that were created. But Israelites said, God has, has a desire for a relationship with us. And as a result of that, the reason why they shouldn't deal treacherously and break covenants with one another was that there was no one else like them. They had a faith that was far different than anyone else on the face of the earth. And so what God is saying is you're different than them. You believe differently. And as a result of that, don't start living uh, in wrong ways with wrong motives towards one another. So we see they had the same faith. What's God saying? God's saying in our first point this morning that we must realize the value of community that is built on covenant. That's built on covenant. This is very important for us as believers. That when we come into this place, that we understand that it's not just our Sunday morning appointment that we're all about here. This isn't, we're not just here because "Eh, I like what Tim says on Sunday and I like the music that, that they play or I'm glad that the kids have something to do or their buildings look great. It's not about that. And if that's your thought of church, you're wasting your time. Church is about, first of all, glorifying God in a spirit of community that is built on covenant. Covenant with God and covenant with one another. That's why we put such an emphasis in regards to church membership. Because we say that it's not just coming in and going, but it's about committing yourselves and being accountable to one another, to God, but to one another as well. So that we know who we can depend on. We know who can be held accountable. We know who is with us in the good times and in the bad. Now, church membership gets a, a bad rap these days because what happens is, is churches mess up, pastors screw up, and as a result of that, we find people that say, you know what, I'm out of there. I'll go look for greener pastures somewhere else. And of course, we've talked about many of times here that there is a time to leave a church. But make sure that you're not making church a disposable thing. Why? Because you are a part of not just a village Bible church, but the covenant of pe- uh, people of covenant that have given themselves over to God, who have said we are going to worship and proclaim the God of covenant that we have. And as a result of that, our fellowship, our relationships with one another must be built on love, integrity, and humility, and compassion. And I will say I'm so thankful that that's where we're at today that we are involved in our normal relationships. We are uh, together, one in the same. Now the problem is, is that churches many times are full of strife, betrayal, envy, 
And as a result of that, we find ourselves not communicating to the fallen world around us that we are Christians because the Bible says that we will be known that we are Christians by what? Our love for one another. So when your neighbor looks and sees you uh, talking badly about a, um, a, f- uh, a uh, fellow believer, then you're going to find yourself not giving very good, a very good testimony uh, to the people around you. I like what this commentator Alden said. He said, all betrayals from the slightest unkindness to the grossest injustice merits God's disapproval. So what are we to do? I want you to turn for a moment to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're in the book of Malachi, go to your right. You're going to go through the Gospels. You're going to see books like Romans and Acts. You're going to see First and Second Corinthians. Galatians, and then the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Just, just a quick reminder of what Paul teaches. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. That's what we're to do. Now listen to what he says. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now notice what he says. It sounds very uh, reminiscent of what Malachi says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Why are we to bear with one another? Because we believe in God. Why are we to love one another? Because God has saved us. And when we get our covenant relationship right with God, we will have a covenant relationship with one another. Second point this morning. The second thing we see is that they were unfaithful. They were unfaithful in their relationship with their Father in heaven. They were unfaithful with their relationship with their Father in heaven. Turn back to Malachi chapter 2 again. Look at what 11 through 12 says. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Let's stop there for a moment. What was going on? Not only were they being unfaithful to their peers, unfaithful to their, uh, their brothers in the Israelite nation, but their treachery and their faithlessness was being seen in their unwillingness to follow God. And they were doing this by marrying people outside of their nation. So let's examine this for a moment. What, what were they doing? Well, their relationship with God was marred as a result of their uh, unfaithfulness that was made evident through God's, through God's covenant of marriage that was ignored. It was through God's covenant marriage that the people were ignoring. So they say, okay, God, you're not our God because it doesn't matter. Even though you've told us always to find a brother or sister in the Israelite nation to marry and you gave us reasons to do it, we're not going to do it your way. You don't know the best things for us. So as a result of that, we're going to go find others who will be better for us. Now, God says that this was detestable, that this caused desecration. Uh, Some commentators mean that this uh, word uh, desecration to the sanctuary was that it was desecration to the individual, that going and marrying outside the nation of Israel was uh, going to hurt you as an individual, the one whom God loves, the sanctuary. One of the other translations says that it's the institution that God loves, and they point to the idea of this being marriage. We're not quite sure what it means. Both of those could be used, but we do know the following, that you as a covenant believer in Israel's day, if you went and married someone outside of your nation and went and came together as a husband and wife, God says you've desecrated something. And it's serious because it's the sanctuary that God loves. Now, why would he speak like that? Why is God so down about uh, the people of Israel marrying an outsider? Was it wrong to find love somewhere else? 
One of these Israelite people go and they send their uh, son off to the University of Egypt. I'm being funny, but, and the son comes back and he says, my freshman year, I found so-and-so, she's an Egyptian. And you know what they say about the Egyptian women? They're wonderful housekeepers. They do a great job. And he brings them back to mom and dad and they get all upset and say, oh no, that's a, that's a wrong thing to do in the eyes of God. Well, why would God be so angry about this? Call it detestable. The answer is, is that God uh, has a certain reason for it. And that it isn't just so much that God is mad that someone is involved with someone from another nation, but it involved their choice, the people's choice that they had in marriage had allowed for idolatry. Now I want to stop there for a moment and make something very clear to everyone this morning. God's anger towards intermarriage, meaning you marrying outside of your culture, outside of uh, your skin color, outside of your nationality, God's anger towards that has nothing to do with race. I want everybody to say that. Has nothing to do with race. There's no problem. God has no issues with an African-American man marrying a Caucasian woman. For an oriental man to marry a Spanish woman. God is fine with that. And God is in fact not just fine with it as if it's something less. But God is happy under one circumstance. And that has to do with what we see. It has nothing to do with race. It was all about religion. It was all about the religion. We know a whole book of the Bible was written to tell us that it had nothing to do with race. We dealt with that last summer, the book of Ruth. We see uh, Boaz, a man of great standing. An Israelite marries who? A Moabitess named Ruth. Now why would God allow that? Why would God then allow a Moabitess woman, an outsider, to be a part of the descendant, uh, I don't know how I would put that in a phrase, to be one of uh, Christ's ancestors, and that, that descendancy, if you will, will be uh, Jesus Christ in his genealogy, if it was about race. Well, we know, as we studied the book of Ruth last summer, that Ruth made a decision when she was talking with her mother-in-law and she said, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. What did she do? Even though she was a Moabitess, even though her people uh, worshipped the God called Chemosh, she said, I abandon all that and I follow your God, the God of Isaac, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So... Why would God speak again so highly about this? Because we see in the Old Testament that when an Israelite and a person from another land who did not uh, pursue God, the God of Israel, there were troubles. Write these uh, down. Israelites marrying Moabite women in Numbers 25 led to idolatry, led to uh, the worship of other gods in Numbers 25. We know in uh, the book of 1 Kings, that an Israelite named Ahab, who was king, marries an outsider named, uh, a woman named Jezebel. And as a result of that, Jezebel brings in the prophets of Baal and Baal worship and defiles many. And that's, of course, when the prophet, the great prophet Elijah, comes into their midst and he begins to announce judgments upon them. But the one I want us to look at very quickly is in, found in verse, I'm sorry, 1 Kings. The book of 1 Kings, if uh, you're in Malachi, go to your left, and you're going to go about seven or eight books into the Bible, maybe ten books into the Old Testament, you'll find the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 11. This is seen no more clearly than in Solomon's pursuit of women from other nations. And God speaks to him about this particular evil and sin. As you're turning there, I'll get us started in verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters, the Moabites, uh, Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidians, the Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. Listen to what he says, not because they're different, but they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of a royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. 
As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. He followed Azareth, the goddess of the Sidians, Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, did. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their god. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. Although he had, he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's commands. Well, what do we have to say about this? Well, God announces this for a very important reason, not just for the Israelites today, but for us as people. And I want to speak to those, especially teenagers, especially those who haven't married yet, who find themselves looking, playing the field, if you will, seeking out who is going to be uh, the one that you love. And something we need to understand very quickly is that in any dating circumstance, in any relationship that's going to grow to be something more than just a casual friendship must always go by a spiritual test. The question we have to ask in all times, in all relationships that we have, especially in dating relationships that involve the emotion of love, we must ask the question, is this person, and I want to make this abundantly clear, don't just take the person's word that he says, I'm a Christian, or I believe in God. That's nonsense. Look at the life that you're living and ask the question, is this person drawing me closer to God or is this person pulling me away? You say, well, he's not doing anything. Well, if you're not being drawn to God, you're being pushed away from God. And the question you have to ask teenager, college student, is this individual bringing me closer to God? Now you will say, but you know what? My mom and dad dated and my dad was a believer and my mom wasn't and my mom came to know Christ. Yes, that can happen. And the grace of God is evident in those circumstances and praise God in those circumstances. But that is the exception, not the rule. And there are some here today who find themselves after making an unwise decision of marrying an unbeliever and they're dealing with the consequences of it. And they would tell you, make sure that you find someone, not of the same race per se, but one who has the same faith. Why? Because the Bible says in Malachi that God was seeking for a godly offspring. Well, what does that mean? Well, we can go through all the theology of what that may mean, but I'm going to give you a very practical understanding of what it is. God wanted people that would worship Him and praise Him. And we know that from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 that the job of the parents was to raise another generation who would worship and revere God. And how is that going to happen? As fathers and as mothers come together, have children, and raise them up in the way and honor of God. And how does that begin to happen? When one father and one mother love the Lord God with all their hearts, they pursue that God with all that they have, and they instill that in the lives of their children. And that's what God is calling you to. God is calling you to, to be so very careful who you begin to yoke yourself together. The book of 1 Corinthians, um, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter, let me see here, hold on a second. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. I'm getting too far down here. Paul says, what place can uh, light have with darkness? What fellowship can a believer have with an unbeliever? Now, that brings up a couple issues that I need to speak about. Number one, young people, put the spiritual test to your dating. Ask that question. Are, is the person that I'm dating helping me grow and are they growing spiritually? But here's the second thing. Maybe today you find yourself married and the one who you're married to doesn't believe. What are you to do? Are you to just break up and say, you know what, i got to go find a believer? No, the Bible speaks about that in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 7, 12 through 14. And this is what I command just because 
Paul commands it. He says, stay in the situation you are. And the unbelieving husband or the uh, unbelieving wife that you're married to, your job is to be the greatest spouse that you could be. You love them. You care for them. You nurture them. You take care of their needs. You do all that you can. And the amazing thing is, is that God says in his word that through that kind of relationship that you have, you literally sanctify the unbeliever. Nowhere else in scripture does it say that an unbeliever is sanctified. You are doing something so supernatural, so mysterious, that until we get to heaven, we won't fully understand or recognize what is taking place. Does that mean you save the person? No, we don't believe that. But God is saying you are setting them apart. That's sanctification. You're setting them apart to be like me. I don't know what that looks like, but that's the word that Paul uses. So stick with it. Be the best spouse that you can be. Honor them as you honor God. And God will bless your life. God will bless your ministry to your spouse in that way. The final thing that we see this morning is that the unfaithfulness came out in regards to their families. Man, I feel like I'm running a mile right now, man. I wore a short sleeve shirt today and I'm still sweating. Uh, They've seen in our families. Look at verses 13 through 16. It says, Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because He no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one, speaking of the husband and wife, in flesh and spirit? Are they not His? And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. He says again, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Let's understand a couple of things. Not only were they being unfaithful to uh, their peers and unfaithful to their God, but they were also being unfaithful to the most important human relationship they had to their families, particularly to their spouses. And what we see is uh, that there are three things that God affirms. Well, first, before He affirms these things, we're told that what these people are doing. It says that the men were taking wives uh, new wives as a result of their wives growing old. One commentator said that they were trading in their old wives for newer ones. That happens all the time. I remember a deacon at the church that I attended as a young boy. Uh, a man, a deacon, uh, a man said after being married, I was friends with his uh, middle son. After years of being married, 15, 20 years of being married, he proudly stood before my parents and said, uh, my wife and I are getting a divorce. And he smiled and he says, it's time for me to get to upgrade to a newer model. This one is broken down. And I've never seen my dad pull his fist back to sock someone's lights out. If you've never seen my dad's hand, it will cover an entire face. It would have destroyed this guy's face. But by the grace of God, my dad didn't do it. We were appalled. I couldn't believe it. I thought divorces would just happen with unbelievers. And here was this deacon, no longer a deacon, who was going to divorce his wife. And I'm sitting there going, why? As a young boy, to, 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 what do you mean to get a newer model? And yet that's what they were doing. They found themselves growing tired of the wives they had and pursuing other ones. What a reminder for us today as men to not break faith with our wives here this Father's Day. Well, why is God so concerned about this? Because God is the greatest lover and fan of marriage. And this is why. Number one, he was the author of marriage. He's the author of marriage. It says that the Lord made them one. It's God who did it. You didn't marry your spouse on your own free will and thought God did it. God is the one that instilled the power within you to be able to do it. As a preacher or a pastor, it is not me who has the authority, but it is by the authority vested in me. Not by the state of Illinois. If that was the case, you could just all go and find yourself a judge or a magistrate who would marry you in a civil union. 
But that's not what we do, is it? We go before God in God's sanctuary and we ask for Him to bless this marriage He's brought together. This is what surprises me about this desire to um, try to allow marriage to be whatever it needs to be. And, and whatever it wants. And people want to define marriage the way they want to define it. It's not for us to define. It is for God to define. And God said it's one man, one woman for a lifetime. And I know that might get some political for some of us, but it's biblical. God defined what marriage is. We can't change it. It's like you coming up and saying your name's not going to be Tim anymore. It's going to be Tyrone. Good luck with that. I'm not changing my name. It has already been defined for me. I can't change it. The second thing we see is it's not just the author of marriage, but is the authority in marriage. It says in flesh, their bodies and their spirits are his. He gives possession. He says they're my possession. He's the one who uh, gave us marriage. He's the one who runs our marriage. Husbands, you don't run your marriage. Wives, you don't run your marriage. God does. He lays down the rules. He's the one who gives us the example. He is the one we are called to strive to please. It's not us. It's not our job just to please our spouse, but first and foremost to please God. He's the authority in the marriage. Next, he's the administrator in marriage. He's the administrator. God is the one that we as spouses, as married individuals, are responsible to first and foremost. It's not our parents. My job isn't to make sure that I live up to the kind of husband that I need to be because my parents told me to. In fact, I am to leave my father and mother and cleave to my wife. It isn't the kids who define what our marriage is to look like and dictate the rules of what mom and dad should do. But every husband and every wife in this place should seek God's pattern for marriage. Why? Because we've learned that man is faithless. Man is a covenant breaker. So who do we turn to if we want to keep this covenant strong? We look to God. We look to God and and what does he teach us? Number one, he gives us his attitude towards divorce. He gives us this attitude. What does he say? He hates it. He hates it. Now why would God speak so forcefully like that. That's an Operation Crowd Reduction message there. I hate divorce. Why would he say that? He says that because divorce is the breaking of the most solemn of all human covenants that are made. He says that because it hurts all parties that are involved. Not just the husband and wife, but the children and the families that are a part of that breaking of that union. The Bible says that it is a covering of violence. What would happen in the Israelite wedding was the husband would take his garment and at the end of the ceremony he would put his garment over his wife. And it would be a sign of protection and care and nurture. Remember that from the book of Ruth? He, she wants him to cover. She wants him to cover with his grope. And that's that covering. Protect me. Be my spouse. And what they say here is what's going on is that they're covering them with violence. They're not covenant keepers like God is. Now, some points of clarity in regards to this. Number one, the first thing we must understand about divorce, we as a church can never water this truth down. God hates divorce. And we have to hate it as well. If we call ourselves to be believers, then we must detest the things that God detests. So we must never water this truth down. Second truth we must understand, God doesn't hate divorced people. God loves divorced people absolutely as much as he loves married people. Let us make that very clear today. Divorced individuals are not second-class citizens. They are bought by the same grace, washed with the same blood, and are sinners in need of a Savior. And we love them because God loves them, no matter your marital situations. Number three, Divorce isn't the only thing that God hates. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that God finds six things, I put up seven, six things that God finds detestable. And I wouldn't just say that. God hates all sin. God thinks all sin is detestable. So you say, well, I haven't divorced my wife. And you start looking down at an individual who's had a divorce in their past. Then you start looking at the sin of lying and the sin of cheating and the sin of faithless living. Maybe not in your married life, but maybe you've done it with your God. Maybe you've done it with a fellow believer. If you think you can look down at a divorced individual, you are wrong. Because the Bible says, why are you looking at someone's speck in their eye when you've got a log sticking out of yours? 
Let's be very careful that we know that we are to love people of all marital situations. The next thing we need to understand is, is that, um, that God doesn't forbid all divorce. There is an opportunity that God allows for divorce to take place. I don't have time to get into it, but if you have a question about that, we're going to deal with that in a, a future message. But I'll talk with you about it. There's a couple instances where God says, because of the hardness of man's heart, you can get a divorce. But understand this in regards to that. While God allows it, he never commands it. Never in the Bible do you see God say, get a divorce. Go do it. I'm all behind you. He says, I'll allow it because of sin. But it's never something that he says to go do. Next principle we must understand. There's life after divorce. Divorce, maybe you're sitting there today and you're saying, man, Tim, you don't understand. I've had a divorce. And I would say there is life after a divorce. While I have never experienced that and can never tell you the pain that you've struggled with that as a result, God is the mender of hearts. God is the restorer of lives. And there is life after divorce. We know that because we've seen individuals who have been able to come from the rubble of a divorce in their life to live wonderfully productive and spirit-filled lives. The final thing I have to say on this as a point of clarity, the church has failed miserably at dealing with this subject. We've blown it. And I want to tell you that this will not happen at Village Bible Church. We will show those who are going through a divorce, those who have been through a divorce, while we will try to do all that we can and be vigilant in stopping a divorce. In fact, there was a couple here that, that attended uh, for some time uh, that were having marital issues. And the wife called me and said, it's done. I'm, I'm, I want a divorce. And I said, well, you don't have biblical grounds for a divorce. And we got into uh, this heated uh, debate about wh whether or not she could divorce or not. And she finally said, I'm done going to your church. You're too black and white. God says there's places for divorce. I said, but you're not a part of any of those. And you know what she said? You're a legalist. You're a legalist and you're being legalistic. And I can't be a part of that kind of church. I will tell you, we will deal black and white on this issue of divorce. But I will tell you, we will do it with great care and great grace because we know this is something that's running rampant, not just in the outside world, but in the church's as well. We're going to get this thing right. And we're going to do it right because God commands us to. So what does he tell us to do? He tells us his attitude towards divorce. And he gives us an admonition to pursue faithfulness with our spouse. Verse 16. It says to guard our spirits. To guard ourselves and our spirits. The word guard in the Hebrew literally means to hedge with horns. To hedge with horns. What does this mean and how do we do it? Number one, to hedge means to protect yourself. You do that, first of all, by understanding the temptation to give up on marriage. Number two, you want to put a hedge of protection around you and your marriage? Always be in pursuit of Christ. Number three, stay committed to your spouse. Don't look for loopholes. Don't say, well, God says I can do this because my husband's a jerk, I can get a divorce. Because my husband has done this or that, I can get a divorce. Because my wife is this, she can't cook, she can't be a part of this, uh, then I will go ahead and get a divorce. Reader's Digest told the story uh, of a husband and wife who had been married almost 70 years, 69 years in fact, and they were in divorce court. And they talked about the amazing thought that this husband and wife after 69 years would be getting a divorce. And the grounds of divorce, and you're going to die when you hear this, was the husband said he was incompatible with his wife. It's a little late to kind of get that squared away. That's not an issue for divorce. What that means is we've taken our eye off of God and put our, li or our lives ahead of others. This is a big one. Number four, put, put around hedges of protection when it comes to you and the opposite sex. Don't flirt. Don't fall uh, prey to emotional connections. Don't allow physical things to take place. Number five, as uh, believers, commit as a married couple to always communicate. Don't stop talking. Communicate with one another. Number six, pursue a life of love and intimacy with your spouse. Pursue that. Don't let that romance die. Number seven, think the best of your spouse at all times. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 speaks of that, that love hopes for all things. And finally, be a covenant keeper in your marriage like God is. God has the plan to help you in your marriage. 
It doesn't have to be on the rocks, but as we've learned in a video series that we did, that marriage on the rock is the best place to be, the rock of Jesus Christ. I know we've been here long. We don't have Sunday school today, but let me close with just a couple applications here. This is important stuff. We've heard a message today about unfaithfulness. Who is it written to? It's written to, uh, I believe, five different people. Number one, to those who are not married. To those who are not married. Number one, when we talk about marriage, I know there are some of you who are dying to get married. Stop feeling that way. Celebrate your singleness. Celebrate your ability to do what you want to do, to be able to go where God would have you to go. The Apostle Paul says it's wonderful to be single. I can serve God in whatever way. I can do what God wants me to do at a moment's notice. I can't do that. I have to ask my wife. I have to make sure the kids are taken care of. I need to make sure all kinds of situations are done because I'm responsible now for a family. As a single individual, you don't have to do that. Understand this single individual. Marriage isn't the only blessing God has given. It's one of them. It is a great one, but it isn't the only one. Celebrate who you are as a single individual. To those who are nearly married, those who are engaged... Think seriously about where your relationship is going. Those who are dating, make sure you know where this is going. If your parents say, where is this relationship going? You better not say, I don't know. If you're saying, I don't know, teenager, about where you're going, then you're heading down a dead end alley. Turn around, listen to mom and dad, and say, just because you think dating it adds up to nothing, it adds up to something. And it adds up if you don't do it right. It adds up to pain, suffering, and consequences that last a lifetime. To the newly married, to those who have been married a couple years, don't always assume it will be this easy. Don't always assume that you're going to look at your wife and you're going to smile. That you're going to look at your husband's faults and say, but that's Tony and he's so wonderful. It doesn't always end up that way. And what does that mean? You who are newly married, work at it. Always work at it. It's the most important thing that you can do. How about those who are, I like this one, Ray, let me have it, numbly married. Numbly married. Maybe you're sitting next to your spouse today and you have never been farther apart. You really don't care. Oh, you're married. You got a ring on your finger. You're married. Your name is on a marriage certificate, but you don't love her. You don't love him. You're just there. You're there for the kids. Beware. You are walking a line that will lead to great tragedy. Shake your head, slap your face, not your spouse's face, slap your face and say, it is not just about my deadbeat husband or my husband who has failed me time and time again. My covenant relationship with him or her is about my covenant relationship with God in heaven. Marriage involves three, husband, wife, and God. And don't think you can just go numbly through your life, not concerned about what your marriage is going to look like, but you pursue it with all your heart as you do it unto the Lord. And finally, those who are narrowly married. Maybe today you're talking the word divorce. Maybe today you are thinking the word divorce. Maybe there's someone else in your life that isn't your husband or wife. I will tell you right now, run away from that with all your heart. Do all that you can to save your marriage because if you don't, you are heading down a road that will lead to a destruction of all the things that we love and are so thankful for God. Oh, that our people would pursue marriage. Oh, that our people would not just pursue marriage, that the marriage that they're in, that they would pursue God-honoring marriages that they would not go and find themselves unfaithful. Because even though we are unfaithful, God is always faithful. Let me pray. Father God, we come to you. And Lord, I know we've gone a little long today. But Lord, what a reminder today when we celebrate uh, the role that fathers play. And it's not that we just celebrate just having a guy around in the house to fix things or to play athletics with. But we honor our fathers because they are a one part of a three-part covenant that is made between two people and God. Oh Lord, I pray that we, first of all, as men would be men who hold fast the covenant we're a part of, that we would watch what our eyes are looking at, that we would make a covenant with our eyes and a covenant with our heart not to pursue other things and not to fall prey to the things that Malachi's day did, pursuing other women. Father, I pray for the wives in this place. Father, I pray that they too would not think this is just a man thing. 
In fact, it was just reported, Lord, that uh, women are now climbing even higher to have the same rate of um, initializing a divorce from their husband. Lord, this isn't just a male thing. This is a male and female thing. So I pray that you would strengthen the hearts of our women who find themselves as wives, that they would love and honor their husbands, and that they would pursue that compassion and that love that you have for them as well. Lord, I pray for those who have found themselves in the, in the clutches of maybe an impending divorce, or maybe sometime in their past they found this breaking of a relationship. Lord, first and foremost, that you would encourage their hearts this morning. Lord, that you would uh, give them a peace. And that, Lord, while it was uh, something that you saw and you said that you did not like, in fact, you hated it, Lord, it's something that can be forgiven. And Father, I pray for our friends and the ones we love in this place who have suffered in a divorce. Lord, I pray that you would encourage their hearts this morning. Lord, if they've never sought repentance over that sin, that they would pursue it today and Lord, be made right today. Father, if there's still an opportunity to make right with a spouse, oh Lord, that they would run to that opportunity, that they would throw aside all the circumstances surrounding that, and because of your covenant with them, that they would do all that they can to live at peace with their estranged spouse. Oh Lord, we want to get this marriage thing right. We want to get it right before we get into it. We want to get it right when we're in it. And Lord, we want to get it right even when we have failed to live up to it in the past. And we need your strength and your power to do it. So Lord, we ask for it. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.